Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello friends, and welcome to part 13 of 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. Today we're talking about part 13 of Twin Peaks The Return. What story is that, Charlie? My name is Nick. I'm here, of course, with Dylan. Hello, Dylan. What's happening, man? Not much. Excited to talk about this episode. It's a great one. Do you want to just give your general thoughts about this one before we dive into it? Sure. Yeah, it's like this is like the first leg in the marathon of uh, weirdness that is the final third of this season. Um, it, there's, uh, we, this is our return to Mr. C, of course, which is in just absolutely glorious fashion. We also have like just so much, so much Dougie, um, happening and at least I don't know about you but for me the initial cherry pie uh scene I I, I thought that this was finally where where we were going to get Agent Cooper back um but yeah I love this episode it, it's it, it has some surprisingly meta moments as well which I thought was really uh really interestingly juxtaposed to some really like lore heavy and plot heavy um doses that were given so this is uh, I I really like this one, and with whatever flaws the previous episode may have had, I think that this was uh, a great return to form. Yeah, yeah, I agree. This is really, like you said, this is really the the first part of beginning of the end, essentially, of this season. And in my opinion, this is the part where things really turn the corner from really really good exceptional television to like truly transcendent (laughs) like to me from this point on the show is just like a rocket ship to outer space and it never stops and from here on out as far as i'm concerned each episode is gonna get better than the one before it like yeah we're, we're really about to enter a pretty insane uh sweet spot here in my opinion and who boy i'm excited to talk about it. we're gonna have a lot to talk about from here on out hell yeah and it's funny how the the first maybe half or the first third of this season really subverts the original run in a lot of ways and then now this final third of the season it seems like it starts to subvert the first third and two-thirds of of the return as well. It kind of like, it just, it, the things that, uh, transpire in the, in these next episodes really kind of like no other TV show I've seen kind of like fold onto itself and really make you question what, what you're seeing and what you already saw in the credibility of, of your memory and that stuff. But yeah, let's just get right down to, uh, to it. Yep. Yeah. There's this pretty much every episode from here on out has like, multiple holy shit moments um yeah it's it's gonna get pretty nuts so yeah uh let's get into it part 13 what story is that charlie 
our new favorite insurance agency. Oh, my God, Battery Bud, you're the man. <laughs> Looks like you boys made quite a night of it. <laughs> Dougie, you might want to call your wife. Wife? Push <laughs> now we come bearing gifts, tokens of our gratitude to you. What is all this? A box of Monte Cristo number two. Oh, nice. A set of monogrammed diamond cufflinks. Oh, they're beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and the keys to your new car. <laughs> a BMW convertible. Now you and Dougie have a match set. I'm speechless. A wrong has been made right, and the sun is shining bright. Uh, thank you, fellas. Let's open with the first scene of this episode, which is a delightful conga line through Lucky <laughs> Seven. This is amazing. Uh, I love this. Definitely one of my favorite intro scenes of the season i love this music that's playing here i think it's actually uh some angelo battlementi composition or another that's been sped up to an insane degree to where it just sounds like square pusher or some shit <laughs> yeah uh i love really anthony's, enjoyable anthony's reaction his reaction is like my favorite thing in, in uh, <laughs> of his that he does because like imagine in put yourself in his shoes like he's he has made measures yeah. to see that the Mitchum brothers assassinate Dougie Jones. And then what does he see at, <laughs> when he comes into work? He sees a fucking conga line <laughs> with the Mitchum brothers <laughs> and Dougie Jones and their, in their, uh, their, their chicks that they hang out with. It's like the level of, uh, just like, Oh shit. That's must be going through his head. Oh, it's so funny. Yeah. And he's so, He's so disturbed by this that he literally just hides behind his desk. Like he yep, just he drops to the floor immediately. It's great. Um, during this whole conga line thing, my favorite thing to do is just fixate on Kyle McLaughlin's face because he is doing some truly glorious face acting. Uh, he's Dougie he's is just as far as I remember. <laughs> oh yeah, Dougie is just along for the ride. <laughs> and he's just he's just smiling ear to ear, just having no idea what's going on, having a great time. And uh it's magic. Um It truly so is. So yeah, so <laughs> So Dougie, the Mitchums and Candy, they go and they pay a visit to Bushnell Mullins, and the Mitchum brothers are here to shower Bushnell with gifts for cutting them that three or I'm sorry, that $30 million check. And uh, they give him a bunch of stuff. Candy presents him with, uh, like I believe, some monogrammed cufflinks. Yep. And a BMW convertible. And, uh, yeah, what I love here is this joke <laughs> where Bushel says, Hey, Dougie, you might want to call your wife. And Dougie goes, Wife? And then the Mitchums just start cracking up, like, ah, this guy. Oh my Dougie god, Jones. I love that. <laughs> what a cut up this guy is. Yeah, it was such a great use of uh like the just all the uses of the Dougie uh repetition 
it it manifests in so many ways but like especially that one just because the moment was so perfect like it was just yeah. like some like some shitty sopranos joke uh like just like these like guys sitting around um oh man i loved it i, I love this whole just scene like, just like bottom, classic right? dougie yeah oh man that dougie uh, jones he's a real he's a real hard ass but <laughs> um it's so funny uh just i had a smile ear to ear watching this mm-hmm. entire scene oh yeah certainly and yeah like we mentioned anthony is incredibly upset by everything happening here <clears throat> he gives uh duncan todd a call and uh duncan todd tells him once again that hey you know this is your problem you gotta kill dougie right and now he cuts he cuts his uh timeline short he says he gives yep. him one day mm-hmm. and not two yeah, Duncan Todd, I, I'm assuming he doesn't really want to uh, run afoul of his boss, Mr. C. So he's uh, he's given Anthony a real short leash here. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's continue with that thread over at the Vegas Police Department where we first uh, check in here on the Fusco brothers. Really odd moment here where there's some sort of really horrible confrontation happening off screen. Difficult to say exactly what's happening here, but for the first time I watched this scene with subtitles and it's pretty intense. Some of the stuff that, that uh, is said here, like um, I wrote it down. Uh, it's like, she can't piss on the floor. Get her out of here. She's still pissing <laughs> Phil. And I'll shit in your mouth. She's got a knife. Fuck you, Twinkies. I'll cut your nuts off. Tase her. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like I caught like half wow. of those. <laughs> I didn't know the, the yeah. Twinkies one. Yeah. Holy shit. Fuck you, Twinkies. I'll cut your nuts off. That's what the woman says. <laughs> That's amazing. She also says, yeah. She also says, I'll shit in your mouth. I heard that in the stuff about pissing on the floor, <laughs> and just the clanging and. Uh, I, the first time I saw this, I, I thought that there was that this was going to be a very different scene. I thought that we were about to get some. Mm-hmm. So, I thought like we were going to go right into that. Uh, that's such a weird thing to let you to make us just take at face value. It's so funny. Okay, so um, yeah, so the Fuscos don't really pay any mind to this. It seems to be just uh, part of the normal comings and goings there. So. An odd joke to start this scene, and then arguably a very cruel joke on the Twin Peaks audience here, where one of the Fusco brothers uh, takes a piece of paper that has a bunch of info about Cooper and Mr. C and everything that's happening here, about Cooper being a missing FBI agent and also having escaped from prison. And they just say, that's a huge fucking mistake. And then they throw it in the trash. And I can just imagine everybody watching this episode, just their stomach sinking. Like, did you really just do that to us? Like, I generally I generally sort of um, reject the idea that Lynch and Frost are doing, like, a fuck you to the audience uh from most of the show but this is really an instance where it's like okay you guys are really just you guys are really kind of rubbing it in our faces now like you're really playing with us pretty hard 
yeah, first go around, I felt like I was being slapped across the face for sure. Because uh, as soon as they produce that document and it's and they reference, uh, yeah, he's in his, he escaped from a federal prison and he's a missing FBI agent. I was just like, oh, my God. Yes. Yes. Finally, someone's going to find out who Dougie Jones is. And then, of course, it just gets ripped away from you. But this time around watching it, I like I forgot all about that. And um when he offers them like the dollar to see if he's going to like get the, get the uh, <laughs> paper in the basket. I just started dying laughing because it really is perfect. Like that's <laughs> those like boneheads. Like that's exactly how they would have handled that situation. And uh, obviously knowing what you know about what happens changes how you feel about a scene like that. And, and I, it absolutely slayed me this time. Oh yeah. It's, it's very funny, but also a little mean. Um, it's, still though. I, indeed. I love it. So yeah, at this point, Anthony shows up and he asks around for a certain Detective Clark. And Detective Clark ends up being the great John Savage, um, who we know mostly from uh, a few classics from the 70s and 80s, like uh, The Deer Hunter and Salvador and Hare and Do the Right Thing bunch of stuff just one of many great actors who show up for like literally a scene uh because david lynch could swing that sort of thing um and yeah he's quite appalled that anthony is asking for poison but uh he directs him to some poison nevertheless um and then the detective kind of rats him out immediately afterwards yeah he does which I was was making me curious about um, what could be the nature of, of their relationship, or, or how how they know Duncan Todd, or or just sort of what that whole web actually is. I know we don't really ever get a huge exposition on it, but I had forgotten about scenes like this where um, it's clear, like that there is uh, that Mister C's kind of got his fingers in all of these little corners, and uh, the the. I didn't know that this uh that 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 this guy was a well-known actor, but I just he has such a command on the screen, especially when he pokes Anthony in the chest and he's like it's perfect for a cowardly fuck like you or whatever talking about the poison. <laughs> uh the guy's just got a real uh even a kind of face that I, I cuz I've seen the deer hunter, so I must have seen him before. Um but yeah, I I wonder about like uh what the whole like criminal underworld of Las Vegas actually entails with scenes like this. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. John Savage, even if you don't know who he is, he just has a real on-screen presence for sure. And I, I love the, just the shocked and appalled look that he gives to Anthony when Anthony asks him for poison. It's, it's really great. Um, so let's, uh, let's stick around in Vegas and pay a visit to the Jones household where the Mitchum brothers are now showering the Joneses in gifts. Um, some Silver Mustang Casino employees show up and greet Janie E. And they deliver her and Sonny Jim with a gym set because, as we've established, every kid needs a gym set. And uh, a new BMW for Janie E. And uh, she's pretty overcome by this, um, understandably so. Uh, 
her life is really uh is really turning around thanks to Dougie. Um and she she mentions it to him a little bit later um when they're sort of she sort of comes at him and puts her arms around him and tells him how much things are getting better and how much she appreciates him and everything like that and that she loves him so much and and all this sort of thing. It's just kind of amazing Dougie how actually he like mouths so much. He doesn't say it, but he like does this like mouthing of it. It was really weird. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, and it's just again, it's incredible how Dougie is unknowingly and unwittingly bringing prosperity to pretty much everyone who comes into his circle, be it Genie E or the Mitchum brothers or you know the old lady at the casino it's like Mm -hmm. just anybody who comes into contact with dougie jones just ends up uh being really blessed in a a very material way true that is true that it is always in a material way and it's always in the in the it's always always with wealth they're always sort of it's money Mm -hmm. but generally which is an interesting antithesis to those who come into contact with Mr. C, who uh, typically meet violence. Um, it's a, it's an interesting dichotomy. But it, the the wealth that these people get does seem to make them genuinely, truly happy in in a lot of ways. So, um, but yeah, D- Dougie Jones just blindly making people millionaires left and right. Yeah, it is a little bit materialistic. I suppose, but by the same token, he really is improving the lives of people who need it, you know, especially in the case of the casino woman. Um, I I suppose the Mitchum brothers weren't hurting for money to begin with, but, you know, he is is bringing genuine light to the people in his life, even though obviously it's... (laughs) it's uh it's completely a a byproduct and a result of him being manipulated by we assume mike and uh the other forces that are are seeing uh, that are seeking to uh bring him ultimately to uh wake up to the cooper we all know and love it's 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 fascinating i agree yeah it's the the development of the dougie character like up to this point it's sort of it's such a slow burn that like you don't he he of course as a character doesn't really develop so you're you have to sort of look at the characters around him and what changes for them and in that it's 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 i don't know it's interesting it's i've never really seen that in a show or a movie before either where uh, except maybe uh, being there which i've talked about before but a character who is sort of static um and their actions completely change the uh, the lives of like all the other characters that are around them. It's a really a, a unique concept and obviously what none of us were expecting for uh, Agent Cooper when we heard that Twin Peaks was coming back. Yeah, certainly unique at least for the protagonist of a major television show. I certainly can't right. think of another example. Um, but yeah, let's we have to talk a little bit about this scene of Sonny Jim playing on his gym set because it is extremely weird and I love it. He's swinging on the monkey bars and uh, just sort of messing around with his, his, uh, his new gym set at night. 
with a spotlight yeah. on him while Tchaikovsky's Dance of the Swans plays over some sort of music box, it sounds like. This is just, I mean, if this were There's literally any also. other <laughs> filmmaker in the world, this scene would be shot during the day with, uh, you know, some sort of happy-go-lucky soundtrack playing. And instead, because it's David Lynch, it's at night and we get, again, one of Lynch's favorite things, a spotlight of totally mysterious and nonsensical origin, just sort of uh, following Sonny Jim around everywhere and we get Dance of the Swans. It's just, it's fantastic. Yeah, and the spotlight's not like really on anything. It's just this sort of rotating spotlight that occasionally catches Sonny Jim and then just goes right by him. Mm it is it's one of the most peculiar scenes like in the whole in the whole return <laughs> for sure just just based purely on on um what it looks and sounds like like it's he, first of all sunny jim's fucking relentlessly going through that jungle gym like he is going he is, ham yeah he's not skipping a beat he's got it down dude like he knows exactly his his route he's gonna go like jump on that trampoline one bounce go through that weird little uh tunnel thing and then there's just the thing that caught me was like the sound of running water at first and then i noticed that there's just like a fountain (laughs) um it's just this this uh I just, I don't know. I just wonder, is that like David Lynch's, is that just like his idea of like the perfect like boyhood activity? <laughs> just like, dude, my parents got me a sweet uh, jungle gym. They let me go on it at night and they let me blast like some lit tunes. And then I got this spotlight that's not even on me, but like, who cares? Cause like, I don't know. It's fun. And then it's all strung up with string lights too. It, it It's just like. It's just one of the, the one of the oddest images uh, I can I can even think of. It's incredibly odd. It's only a few seconds long, but it always just stood out to me as a particularly and this is an overused word, but but Lynchian touch because again, just no other filmmaker would depict this scene in this way. It's just. It's just very, very specific to Lynch, and that's that's what I love about it. I agree. Yeah, it's almost like it's just like a, I don't know, like a signature touch or just something like. Obviously, obviously, there's nothing to be mined from a scene like this. It's just like as you put it, it's very, it's very Lynchian, which I think is actually now a word in the dictionary, which is, which is something. yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, it's just a great little. Um, idiosyncratic touch that i i really enjoy definitely so let's finish up in vegas for this episode and see what happens with dougie and anthony and anthony's botched failed attempt at poisoning dougie first off we get the all-important moment of dougie running into the glass door which is just vital Yes, that's that's among my favorites uh, of anything I've ever yes. seen in my life, on or off screen. Yes, because <laughs> I saw it coming a fucking mile away. Yeah, we've been anticipating this moment for a while now. This is a beautiful, and, uh, beautiful moment. I re- rewinded it. I rewinded it like three times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so 
<laughs> it's odd what happens here because Dougie and Anthony sit down for uh, a cup of coffee and Dougie very quickly becomes distracted by this coffee shop. I'm pretty sure it's the same place that Mike waves him into to go get the cherry pie before he meets them before he uh, he meets the Mitchum brothers. Fairly mm-hmm. certain of that. It is. I'm ninety percent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the woman working behind the counter there kind of seems to know what the deal is. She's like, "Yeah, I'll get you a cherry pie. Just go back and enjoy your coffee." Like she's seen Dougie before. She knows. She knows his deal. Oh yeah. Um, and while he's up, Anthony uses this opportunity to pour some poison in his coffee. And when Dougie comes back, he sees some dandruff on Anthony's shoulders. And starts like massaging Anthony. Do you have any theories about what is going on with Ducky here? Like, what does he think the dandruff is, and why is he drawn to it? I got no fucking clue. He, it's like he just walks back to the table, and then you get this shot of Anthony's backs and shoulders, and then Ducky just starts touching them. And mm-hmm. and Anthony doesn't even he doesn't even question it at all in any way. He just sort of <laughs> No, in it, fact he's incredibly moved by it. Incredibly. It it it, it uh and I think later he says like Dougie oh, what does he say? He he somehow like implicates that Doug or, or thinks that Dougie was uh that Dougie knew about the poison. Was onto him. Like that Dougie so, Yeah, exactly. But that's how he interpreted Dougie giving him a back massage was that he was onto him about the poison. Which right, he thought okay. that Dougie was, was <laughs> killing him with kindness. Which I mean, yeah, if, if so, someone was gonna try to poison me, I mean, giving him a back massage is maybe like ten thousandth <laughs> on the list of things that I would probably do when I found out. But okay, yeah, but you know what? That's not what I would do either. But we're not Dougie Jones, and uh, as we've established, Dougie just has that has that way about him that uh makes people uh bend to his will he certainly um does. so the only the only like halfway plausible theory that i've ever heard about this and uh the twin peaks rewatch guys brought this up too was like maybe he sees the dandruff on the black shirt and thinks that it's like a field of stars you know sure <laughs> um like latent in cooper's memory from having fallen through non-existence that's like literally the only theory I've heard that made me thought like maybe I don't know but yeah other than that I really I got nothing for it um, yeah I don't I don't know if we're <laughs> if the, uh, with something like that with something so random how could you how could any filmmaker like ever expect like someone to find the literal meaning in something like that like it's just some weird shit that Dougie did on a, a long list of weird shit that Dougie does. <laughs> yeah, it's very curious, but like I mentioned, Anthony is just, he just breaks down crying at this. So much so that he, he takes Dougie's poisoned coffee cup and just, like, he tosses the coffee in the urinal and throws the coffee in the trash, and some guy's sitting there taking the leak going, that bad, huh? Uh, <laughs> great moment that. 
Yeah, you know what's interesting about this scene, and I know I I have a tendency of of bringing up the uh, behind the scenes features a lot, but this was definitely uh, one of the scenes that stood out to me because during the scene where um, Tom Sizemore is just breaking down crying here, saying, I never meant to hurt anybody, etc. Lynch is like incredibly emotional behind the camera. Like, to me, the scene played for laughs um, as I was watching it, but Lynch, like, he has tears in his eyes behind the camera, and he is just, like, giving an impassioned plea to Tom Sizemore to play it as real as possible, and he's saying all this stuff to him, like, he's like, you gotta pull it from the depth of your fucking soul, man! And Lynch (laughs) is just, like, welling up with tears during this, and it's just so striking to me. Like, it just makes me think that maybe Lynch just has a totally different take on some of this material than we expect them to. I don't know, that moment was just like very surprising and notable to me. Yeah, well, I I don't know. I think a part of it might be that we as the viewers would see a character like Anthony as antagonistic and not really uh we don't have like the level of compassion for a guy like that that we would have for like Big Ed for example um so but like the things that that anthony says like throughout the course of all this are very like uh if you take him at face value like that is a broken human being where he's like i just want to either die or change i haven't slept in weeks um if like and so i guess hearing that because i obviously didn't know that until you just said it so hearing that it kind of makes a little bit of sense to me how lynch would direct him to be uh, be so like a man so over his head in in such deep shit that he could use a golden shovel to shovel himself out but like he just mm. just um the the like despair especially when he's talking to bushnell and, and dougie that uh that he depicts um it, it is interesting to me though that like, i wouldn't have expected lynch to have tears in his eyes while directing it but yeah it it, it is for sure like a really raw kind of uh kind of scene just the way that the things yeah, that he and says this, yeah and to be clear the scene that i'm talking about is the one with dougie and anthony at, at the at the table not not the the next one uh with bushnell oh which is why well, i thought it was right. weird because right because so much of that scene is like just like basically slapstick comedy you know it's the one that opens with dougie hitting his head on the door you know right so, exactly yeah. you know i just i i think it's I think it just says that maybe David Lynch has a certain level of baseline empathy for the characters that he writes, even if maybe we as an audience don't 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 feel that for the character necessarily. Yeah, def- he he definitely he must because you you see it in the depth of the characters uh, like that, or even like Richard or like Mister C, um, who are very unlikable characters that have um, a lot of emotional depth to them, which I think knowing what we know about Lynch and how he directs, um, he must require a high degree of empathy to, to sort of draw that out of, out of like an idea of a character. And then also to get that out of your actors. Yeah. There's a very high level of emotionality in Lynch's work in general. He doesn't really go for subtlety very much. Like he tends to really draw 
big performances out of his actors you know he really wants them to play it big and emotional you know a lot of actors will say working with lynch that they'll play it relatively straight and he'll almost always encourage them to go like bigger and bigger and you know even more angry or sad or or whatever it is and um you know i think that's just i think that's who he is i think he's just uh a person of a very deep feeling uh is is my hunch so yeah um like we mentioned anthony inspired by uh Dougie's compassion towards him feels compelled to confess everything that's going on to Bushnell Mullins, confesses to working with Duncan Todd and defrauding Lucky Seven and falsifying all these claims and whatnot. And Bushnell is just like, yeah, I mean, Dougie told me all this already. He had those drawings of all the uh, the ladders and uh, and lines and whatnot, and that not only told me what was going on with you, but implicated himself. <laughs> He's so selfless. Again, yeah, just the selflessness of Dougie Jones. I mean, it's just totally absurd, again, but delightful. Like, Dougie's case files drawings are just, they're like the, they're, they're the catalyst for a surprising amount of, of action in this show. It's pretty great. Yeah, it's it's funny for for how much a lot of people I remember like during those scenes or like a few I'm sorry during those episodes and a few episodes after, uh, were still pretty salty about like what the fuck was all those weird sketches about anyway and then how it uh how it comes kind of not even full circle but comes back up later. Uh, hey, never question the what Dougie Jones does. They are. That's just what dude. What Dougie touches turns to gold. He's like. And not even like a King Midas way in like a purely unadulterated, <laughs> awesome way. Yeah, man. Something else that Dougie Jones. So yeah, that's going to do it for the Las Vegas thread of this episode. Let's go check in on our old pal, Mr. C, who we have not seen in a very long time. Not since the very beginning of episode nine, when he met with Hunch and Chantal and, uh, texted Diane from his sparkly pink cell phone and drove off in his big-ass truck. And he shows up at the farm for a truly amazing scene. This is, like, one of the... Uh, it's one It's one of the scenes that when I watched it for the first time, I was, like, uh, so on the edge of my seat, like, during the arm, rust, arm wrestling scene that like like i i don't know i could my i feel like my arm was flexed the whole time like i was just i was so intently uh like watching for what was going to happen but this uh this has so much not only is it just like a a just ridiculous event like of of a scene it also we get a ton of information uh f- about a lot of things about Phil Jeffries about Richard and um yeah this one this one blew me mm-hmm. the fuck away yeah, this this whole scene here, this whole conceit of the arm wrestling and the leader of this gang of criminals being decided through this very macho but ultimately 
quite meaningless contest of arm wrestling is just uh, totally unex like who th- who could have in their wildest dreams imagined that this is what Mr. C was going to get up to when he pulled up to this this situation here like you thought there was going to be a bloodbath but no what we get is an arm wrestling match and I just love this, the way that this scene devolves into just a gloriously, deliriously over-the-top send-up of a certain type of masculinity, particularly, like, cinematic masculinity. It's just, it is so, like, unique and brilliant and silly, while at the same time, like you said, being extremely intense and ultimately loaded with a lot of significance it's just it's one of the most unique things that i've seen on television yeah the way that that lynch manages to kind of even defy like i don't know he he defies expectations in so many ways while still obviously maintaining like a signature style. Like, so like there are lynching things that you would expect. And I guess that this is a lynching scene, or at least a lot of the, the, the parts about it are, but like, I don't know the, the way that he seems to depict underworlds and, and, and bad guys and that kind of stuff. It ultimately, it's usually pretty dark and Mr. C usually is up to some pretty dark shit. And, uh, when I saw them, when I first saw this compound and we get the return of Mr. C, it's like you're saying, you're expecting the bloodbath. You're expecting there to be um, some sort of uh, violent uh, like clash or somehow. And then when you find out it's arm wrestling and then Mr. C <laughs> says, what is this kindergarten? It's just like... <laughs> uh, Oh, I don't know. Like you just have to just sort of like accept it. Like I, I, I didn't even like when I heard arm wrestling, like I didn't even really like register to me, like how patently absurd that is for like, yeah, <laughs> like what, like what I was probably expecting. But the biggest thing uh, for me about this scene, and I wonder if it was the same for you was this is like the only scene I can think of where I actually was like, I don't know, rooting for Mr. C or like, uh, like during the arm wrestling match, like uh, like I don't know, his charm won me over in this in a scene in this scene. It was really weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely know what you mean. I think part of it is just the fact that we haven't seen Mister C in a while, so we're like pretty excited to see him because he is in a lot of ways, I guess, along with Dougie, the driving force for a lot of the major action in the show, and he's been gone for three straight episodes. So you're just kind of excited to see him back. And then the other thing is like everybody in this gang of outlaws is pretty silly. Like they're all these sort of stereotypical gangsters, just sort of these long haired slack jawed dopes, you know, with the exception of Renzo, who's (laughs) like a pretty imposing figure. And Mr. C is just so much, smarter and stronger and more capable than all of them and they have no idea what it is that they've gotten themselves into and they think oh well this weird middle-aged dude with uncomfortably long hair is thinking that he's gonna get one over on us but he's not and then just to see mr c 
totally turn the tables on them uh, is just very satisfying. So I, I yeah. think that that's where I think that's where that I guess you could call it rooting quote unquote interest in Mr. C comes from in this scene. Yeah, it's interesting how like you know of course that Mr. C is a, quite more powerful than everyone in this in this scene uh and like you, d- you know from the get-go that he's obviously going to like this probably ain't going to be the scene where Mr. C uh gets killed. He's probably going to walk into the situation uh and and take it over. But how and when? Like as soon as he's on screen. Uh the how and when is what gets me. It's similar to uh Dougie walking into that glass the that glass door because it's like you know he's gonna but like it's a clear door like when when's he gonna do it when's he gonna hit that glass it's kind of the same thing it's like well when when is mr c gonna get one over on these guys and how and it turns out (laughs) by breaking his arm and punching this dude in the face which is absolutely like brutal yeah it's rough when the henchmen started describing arm wrestling it it's almost like I didn't even it's like my brain refused to accept what he was talking about like it was just like <laughs> arm wrestling like what okay like Mr. C is obviously just going to shoot everybody here in the face but then once it became clear that they were going to actually go through with this and have this arm wrestling match with Mr. C I just like this <laughs> just this sense of glee just crept up my spine and oh boy it's a great scene um yeah so he he has this pretty amazing quite long arm wrestling match with this guy Renzo his name is he's he's the leader of uh of this gang here Renzo is a uh, played by a guy named Derek Mears who is probably best known for playing monsters in a bunch of stuff like he was jason Voorhees in the friday the 13th reboot he was uh the classic predator in not this most recent predator remake but the one before that from like 2010 or something um he's also the alien on the roof in M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. So he's been in a ton of stuff, and he sort of specializes in, like, these big, imposing monster figures. And I think that's part partly why he was cast here, just to sort of... Um, just to sort of play counter to the, you know, relatively normie-looking Mr. C, I guess you could say, at least in terms of size and build. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, yeah, this scene, I love the way that this scene is edited. It's extremely patient, and we get lots of cuts to the the gang who are just sort of looking on, shouting words of encouragement towards their leader. And I especially love Ray's faces that he's making here, because obviously Ray is, Ray is like the pawn in this whole scenario, Mr. C, the only reason he's doing this arm wrestling thing is so that he can get to Ray. And Ray's look of increasing panic <laughs> as it becomes clear that Mr. Yeah. C is just toying with Renzo here is really, really fantastic. Uh, some, he, he looks like some a, really top-notch face acting from George Griffith here. Yeah, he looks like a guy who is watching a horse race and it starts off pretty great and then pretty <laughs> soon goes downhill. It just like the, the way that the... Uh, the, and uh, his horse, his horse trips, and the jockey goes flying. 
Yes, exactly. And then like he, the guys in the gang just start kind of pulling him back in, like, hold on, like you're not getting out of here. Ezekiel's trying to get closer and closer, but it is really well edited, and the the sound design too is real. I was watching it with headphones this morning, and it's it's like it's very frantic. It really makes you feel like there's something dangerous happening, and it's a fucking arm wrestling match. But like it, it, it like, uh, I I don't know. I got the. I got the whole vibe that someone's arm was going to break like right away. Like just as soon as they start pushing, it just has this really like kind of like tight clenched like this, this sound needs to like almost the sound design itself cued me into the fact that like something's going to have to like snap and like release this into silence again. Like you can't just go silent. There needs to be some sort of like, this is going to end in a big way. Um, but yeah, it is really, uh, it, it it's such like a, uh, for something so goofy it's wicked intense <laughs> yeah you're right some great sound work here especially the sound of renzo's arm crunching and like ripping apart a little bit as mr c brings his arm down lower you know yep you're like doesn't it hurt when i go like that you know um <laughs> some very good sound work here and mr c is just this is no this is no sweat for him he, he's obviously not putting forth any effort and he is just completely toying with renzo bringing his arm up and down and back and forth just really making an ass out of him and finally decides to finish it off by slamming his arm to the ground and just punching him in the face which just caves in his face and kills him instantly and uh Curiously, the first thing he does after this is ask for everybody's cell phones. I'm not sure why he wants that. <laughs> I guess maybe just to have some more like burners to throw around is my guess. That's what I thought. Not really. Yeah, sure. I thought he just was trying to just. He's always. I just get that sense that he's just always looking for cell phones, just new weird cell phones with weird operating systems to to somehow do weird technological magic with. Yeah, yeah, that is his specialty. Um, so yeah, he collects a bunch of cell phones and then just sends everybody except for Ray out of the room because uh, he has some business with Ray. And Ray, at first, says, "Can we talk about this?" And then just gives like the most pathetic attempt at lunging away I've ever seen. And Mister C just shoots him right in the leg, and. Immediately after this, we get a very strange moment with an accountant who's just sort of being, uh, who's been hanging around in the background of all these scenes. Just this nerdy, small dude with glasses just hangs out near the top of the stairs and asks him if he needs any money. Uh, which I guess if you're going to have a gang uh, of this size, I suppose you would need somebody who uh, is the brains of the operation uh, who, who knows what to do with money. I mean, I'm sure those impossibly huge, gigantic flat screen TVs they have are not cheap. So yeah, they needed this dude to crunch the numbers to f- figure out how they could budget those sweet flat screens. Of course that, that guy's yeah. one of the most perplexing characters like <laughs> ever to me. I was just like, who the hell yeah. is this? <laughs> like, who's this guy? I thought oh, he was yeah. going to be important. <laughs> Yeah, the fact that that they took a moment out of this very significant and tense moment to 
cut to the accountant is very strange and i'm gonna once again uh refer to the behind the scenes footage where very curiously during this scene the accountant character as they're filming his shot whoever this guy jason s is who filmed all this documentary footage felt the need to like give this guy a title card like they're like he's he's shooting the filming of the scene and then he focuses on the accountant and then it's just like a freeze frame and then the words the accountant appear in big letters beneath him what and he doesn't do that for like any other character in the entire show and it is incredibly bizarre so even in the behind the scenes this guy is given a very strange level of emphasis I yeah, this is one of like the few where I absolutely have nothing. Like I have, <laughs> I have no commentary on the account. Like he's just, he he's like I feel like I'm gonna see that guy when I die. Like it's just like this unanswered, <laughs> unknowable eternity. Like what the fuck's that all about? Like there's so many weird things about this show, but for some reason this like goofball, uh, he's wearing like floods. He's just he looks like he's about to like. <laughs> puke and or shit his pants and then just that one do you need any money to which mr c just replies no <laughs> it, uh, okay yeah it's just uh, uh, i don't know man i i, I love it personally like I, I'll, I love those moments where i'm just absolutely befuddled um especially in the middle of of uh, such a significant scene like there's so many things right, happening right, and then it's right. just like wait hold on hold on who is this dude this has got to be important oh it's not <laughs> it really it sure seems yeah. like it might be yep so that's the accountant never see him again uh but apparently it was it was of crucial importance that we stop all the action to uh to have a moment with this guy so here we get a whole lot of information from ray some of which makes a lot of sense and is pretty illuminating. Some of it is pretty confusing, especially given some information that we're going to learn about Ray later in this season. But the gist of it is that Ray says that he was hired by Philip Jeffries to kill Mr. C. And that once he had killed Mr. C., he was to place the Alcave ring on him. And uh, we're about to get an illustration of why later in this scene, because apparently the function of the Alcave ring in this season is that if you die while wearing the Alcave ring, you will be transported back to the lodge. And that's what happens to Ray. First, the Alcave ring uh, dissipates, and shows up in the lodge, and then Ray's body does as well. So that is probably the most concrete function that we've ever seen uh, the Alcave Ring display. Um, so that's fascinating. And also, Ray says that he never actually met Jeffries, and that he only talked to him on the phone, uh, which definitely made my antennas raise up because it brings to mind the question of whether or not he was actually working with Philip Jeffries because we know that somebody out there is 
purposefully impersonating Jeffries to their own ends. I know you and I believe that it's Judy. Um, so yeah, just a, a lot of questions <laughs> around that. Uh, do you do you have any thoughts of uh, anything that I've mentioned so far? Well, yeah. I mean, given what we know about Ray or find out about Ray later and that he's an FBI agent or informant. Yep. Um, he's, is he an mm-hmm. informant or is he or is he an undercover agent? I don't I don't remember. He exactly. is a Gordon Cole refers to him as a paid informant. Okay. So, all right. So then I'd have to assume that he's lying at some level if he's not in, in to Mr. C, but, um, I don't know. There's, it's really confusing to me what the exact, yeah, me too. <laughs> like, like what his ends, what, what his ends were like, sure. He's a paid informant to the FBI, but that doesn't mean that like that guy was, uh, like secretly a good person, uh, trying to like, he wasn't an undercover FBI agent. He was just giving information to the FBI. He was a rat. So, I don't know. Um, the, the, all all I'd have to really say is that I, I I definitely don't think he was working with Philip Jeffries. I think he was for sure being manipulated, um, most likely by the same person who was manipulating Mister C earlier on. But it is weird that if that entity thought that's posing as Philip Jeffries, why would it reveal itself to Mister C? Like, why didn't it continue to? manipulate him and or or like try to use him to to their end i I wonder why it would have like stayed undercover or stayed impersonating philip jeffries toward ray with the purpose of of killing mr c um when it had mr c on the hook as well so that's the only reason why i'm not certain that those two entities are like the same like the the whoever Ray was in contact with might not be the the voice at the end of the phone that Mr. C was talking to in like part two or three or whenever that was. Yeah, you know, you know what I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to think about, and I'm actually trying to look it up right now is whether or not Jeffries, um, the tea kettle Jeffries. Uh, references Ray at all when Mr. C goes to um, goes to pay him a visit because I want to say maybe he does but I honestly can't remember um, I really wish I knew that um, I can't remember either okay I'm looking at the wiki right here it says Cooper's doppelganger drove to the convenience store and received an audience with the real Jeffries at the Dutchman's, determining that he had no involvement with Ray. Okay. Yeah, that's I what think it says Mr. on the Mr. C asks here. him about Ray. I, I'm pretty sure Mr. C right. asks him about Ray, and he's like, has nothing to say, really. Or maybe he right. says that he knew Ray. I don't remember. Probably should have watched it. Mm-hmm. Rewatched it. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I had watched that particular scene um, before doing this, but yeah, that's what the wiki says. Um, I mean, I guess it's possible also that Philip Jeffries is lying to Mr. C, um, but there's, I guess there's no way of knowing, really. Um, I would I would tend to agree with you that it's more likely that uh, Ray is being lied to by somebody impersonating um, Philip Jeffries. 
Um, but yeah, it's very curious. I, it's so hard for me to square the idea that Ray could be working for both the FBI and Philip Jeffries simultaneously. Like, I just don't understand that. For for one thing, I, I have a huge question about the timeline here. Like, when did when did Ray start working with the FBI? Because if it was from the beginning, then, like, obviously the FBI would have had information about what Mr. C was up to before they go visit him uh, in prison, you know, after after his whole car accident thing. So mm-hmm. would that mean that Gordon and Albert already knew what was up with Mr. C before they go visit him? Because it sure seems like they didn't. You know, like, like that conversation that they have outside afterwards where Gordon is like, I hate to admit this, but I don't really understand this situation. I just don't like how, <laughs> how could Ray be working for the FBI? I don't get it. I don't either. And I, I have, I don't know if I've actually thought about it this long in a while, but yeah, it, it's really perplexing because obviously Ray has been with Mr. C since, uh, the first episode and, and we don't yeah. find anything out of, or, or the, like the blue row task force doesn't find anything about Mr. C until way, way, way later. So I guess we would have to, if we're just going to take it at face value, assume that they contacted him after they found out prison, about maybe? Mr. C while he's in prison. Yeah. Especially cause they say that someone dressed as a guard, uh, is the one who gave him the owl cave ring. Which, which, by the way, is super fucking weird. And the only thing that I can think about is that, um, and, and it contradicts what I was just saying about maybe the person Mr. C was talking to or the thing Mr. C was talking to might not be the same thing that Ray is talking to, is that that entity, like, if it has access to the owl cave ring, the only character I could think of that would be able to make that happen is Mike. Uh, and Mike would possibly want to be with Bob again. Uh they were a thing before. Um and Mike has just fucking right. confused me forever and ever and ever about his <laughs> motives and his uh his his alignment. Um so yeah. but yeah, I, mean, I don't some people I do got believe nothing. that Mike is actually the one impersonating Philip Jeffries. Like that is a theory out there. So it, it would make sense to if me. If you Yeah. Yeah, but then I guess it raises the question of like how would like how would Mike materialize in the real world, and how would he be dressed as a cop? Like, it's just it's hard to imagine that. Yeah, you know, one. Yeah, I don't know Mike that he necessarily would, did uh, that. Yeah, but well, he yeah, has his again, doppelganger, like, right, Philip Gerard? Is that his doppelganger, or is uh, that's that not his, his doppelganger? Like... No, it's it's not his doppelganger. Philip Gerard is the is the is the body that Mike inhabits. You know, because okay. Mike is like an ancient spirit, and so Philip Gerard right. was like the shoe salesman that he happened to be inhabiting when when. Uh, okay, but that's his starts. like material form. Yeah, it is, and we don't see okay. him in the quote unquote real world at all in this season. Um, at least until you could argue part 17, where he greets Cooper, uh, through the hotel room and and says the fire walk with me poem and all that. And they go to Philip Jeffries, but 
even then, like, that is a sort of ambiguously, quote-unquote, real space that they're in at that point. Yeah, right. So, yeah, this uh, this stuff is super confusing. I, I never know what to make of Ray. And you're right, it's... Yeah, and he says that Jeffrey's... The way that he puts it, the way that Ray puts it, is that Jeffrey's set the whole prison thing up with warden murphy and i wonder what he means by that because i don't think that he's talking about the escape because the reason warden murphy let them go is because mr c had knowledge of the whole like mr strawberry joel mccluskey dog legs thing and freaked him out with that and said like you need to let me and ray out of here so mm-hmm. like i don't think he's talking about that i think he must be talking about the whole like him getting arrested right because ray's ray's story originally was like i got busted carrying guns over a state line right like that's what we hear in like what like the second episode or something when uh he's talking to daria so i took it to mean that he he's implying that jeffrey's was instrumental uh in getting him arrested um getting ray jeffrey's um, yeah, and that yeah, uh, Jeffries or the person claiming to be Jeffries was like some somehow convinced or manipulated Warden Murphy to to get him arrested. Which I don't. It's <sighs> it it's makes my head spin just thinking about it. Well, Very if that's curious. the case, then um, is what to the point to the end of like 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 the only reason that it would be beneficial to have Ray in yankton federal prison or whatever it's called is because mr c eventually ends up there but he ray ends up in prison obviously prior to to that whole thing going down so right and mr c only ends up in jail mr c only ends up in jail because he has that car accident right so like which was his how could they have yeah how could they have foreseen that you know what i mean unless unless it was uh done by somebody who because he says philip jeffries is the one who set the whole thing up if that's mike um we know oh no mike's not i don't know no one was necessarily in on um mr c like subverting the whole attempt to get him back into the lodge right he's he kind of like mike we we this is such a weird conversation mike was expecting (laughs) mr c to go back into the lodge, right? Or anticipating Correct. it. Correct. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so he's unlikely to be uh, have expressed knowledge that he was going to somehow give himself um, a Garmin Bose, a tummy ache, and crash his vehicle and puke yeah. and get arrested. I don't know, man. This is one of the ones where mm-hmm. if if Ray had said nothing at all, uh. <laughs> like we would probably be in better shape <laughs> like to figure out like what's yeah. been going down this whole time this muddies the water yeah. so much yeah this is just one of those things like the whole raymond rose saga is unfortunately just something i kind of come up with empty-handed uh as far as trying to form a, a linear path in my mind and then you know when once you throw in him being somehow an fbi informant this whole time it just it fully falls apart for me and i just i 
at a certain point, I just have to throw up my hands and, and just say, okay, fine. Yeah. I mean, it, the FBI informant thing really is a very hard one to, to wrap your head around because it, it, it means so much and it, it, it like completely changes the, like the whole, his whole motivation for like, for, I don't know, or maybe it doesn't. And maybe, uh, maybe it's just, maybe they got him as an informant by the time he got to the farm. But like the fact that it's not, it's just sort of like, it's like said in passing almost or not in passing, but like, it's really not dwelled on at all. And it implicates all of this other very tenuous, delicate plot that we're like barely piecing together with like with our fucking <laughs> whiteboard and markers and like arrows and shit. It's like, Oh yeah. By the way, he was an FBI informant. It's like, huh? Wait, hold, what? When? Why? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Who knows? I, I tried to do uh, a little bit of digging online as I sometimes do before uh, we record these things to try and just see what people are saying and see if I can like come to any sort of conclusion that makes sense to me. And this was not one of those cases. It was really a thing where the more that I read about Ray, the more confused of that I got. So um, yeah, I really got nothing. Uh, so yeah, basically... The way that the scene ends is that Ray gives Mr. C the coordinates that he supposedly got from uh, Betty, Bill Hastings' secretary. Although he does, of course, because this is Twin Peaks, he has to uh, throw some doubt onto it by saying, like, how can you even be sure that the coordinates I'm giving you are, are real, etc. And then he says, I know who you are. Which was curious to me. Like, how does... Like, does he mean that he knows that Mr. C is a doppelganger? Or does he think that he's Cooper? Like, the missing FBI agent? Very curious. I don't know. I don't know if that's... If he's referring to what he saw the last time he saw Mr. C was... Which was... I don't know if he means, like, he knows that he's supernatural. Or he knows that he's... Yeah got powers or some kind of shit like that but um mm-hmm. i thought the same thing too i thought he was going to expound on like i know who you are agent cooper but no he's ray kind of goes back and forth in this whole like the throughout this whole scene where he's like how can you even trust what i'm going to give you but then he gives it to him like anyway like there's no mm-hmm. he just sort of like like you said he casts doubt but then just sort of like goes through with it like Willie, like like it just doesn't even matter. So, um, he yeah, what a what a weird character. Yeah, it's makes me wonder how much knowledge Ray actually has of all of the, you know, the Black Lodge Dutchman's Philip Jeffries of it all. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. he he clearly knows or at least thinks he knows a little bit about these uh these things but again it's just so hard to discern what's real what's not what's a lie what's truth with with regards to ray so um right i'm pretty sure the very last thing that ray says is like 
he said he's at the Dutchman's, but that's not a real place. Or he's about to say a real place, and then he gets mm-hmm. shot. Um, yeah, he says it's not a real place. But does that... What the fuck does he mean by that? <laughs> like, define real, um, Ray. Yeah, I don't know. And how would he know? Because he says that he only ever talked to Philip Jeffries over the phone. Mm-hmm. So, like, how the fuck would he know what the Dutchman's is or isn't, you know? Uh, yeah, I got no, I got nothing. Let's like, uh, <laughs> I don't think yeah. anyone's got uh, anything. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and um, I, I would say, you know, we we could talk about this forever, but just uh, just to wrap up with with Ray here, one last point is that um, he does make the point that the person that he's talking to, be it uh, Jeffries or the Philip Jeffries impersonator. He mentions that what the that what they want is um, something inside Mister C. They want something mm-hmm. inside, which obviously means Bob. Um, which again gives a little bit more credence to the idea that uh, he's been communicating with the Philip Jeffries impersonator from Part Two because that was also what that person wanted. You know, right. saying you know we will be with Bob again or or whatever they say. So. Um, yes yeah so that's that Mr. C kills Ray and uh, the ring disappears Ray disappears uh, and then Mike shows up to place the ring back on the table and that is the end of a long and thrilling amazing and ultimately confusing scene um yeah, so let's uh <laughs> we do get just a quick scene here, uh not too consequential of Hutch and Chantal taking a ride here, uh chowing down on some snacks, talking about uh some Mormons, uh about how they don't have sex before marriage and et cetera, et cetera. Uh not too uh, not too significant here, just some more of like uh uh, some like hillbilly philosophizing from the two of them. I love how he says, um, "He's like, yeah, but they can marry." I heard about six or ten women. It's like six or ten, like, <laughs> not six seven or, or eight ten, or nine, six or ten. That's it. One, six yeah. or ten. <laughs> yeah, I had heard that um, Tim Roth and Jennifer Jason Lee like pleaded with Lynch to shoot some more scenes together. Um, than was originally scripted and this makes me wonder if this is one of those just because it's such a one-off you know yeah I I, I would have loved yep. to have more with them more one-offs like this too more of just like because you can obviously tell they're they're riffing like they're having fun uh-huh yeah 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 any time with Hutch and Chantal is uh, always enjoyable in my book so let's see what's up in Twin Peaks shall we uh, so we go to the diner, the double R diner, where Shelly gets a call from Becky. And Becky is um pretty stressed out. She's saying that Stephen has been gone for two days, and Shelly basically does her best to console her, and ultimately piques Becky's interest by 
offering her uh, some cherry pie with a scoop of ice cream. Uh, it's it's cute that like across generations, the double R cherry pie has just a uh, uh, such a profound pull over the residents of Twin Peaks. Uh, even a grieving wife in her darkest moments can't can't resist it. Apparently, yeah, it's it, it tethers the community. It's just a it's just a symbol of wholesome. Uh, I don't know, just a, a, the, yeah. what that represents, like to even Cooper, too, like the mm-hmm. this cherry pie. It's a uh, it, yeah, it, it, it and defies Becky is explanation. Just, yeah, and Becky is just like even despite herself she's like damn it that does sound pretty good <sighs> fine I'm gonna, I'm gonna show up and eat some cherry pie it um, is a, it's an interesting use of becky too because i actually i had forgotten yeah. that that's how this scene starts because that's obviously not where it ends up yeah right 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 so this happens a little bit later but since it happens at the double r we'll just talk about it now um later that night or i guess maybe it is later that night (laughs) maybe not uh there's some weird chronology stuff happening here that we'll talk about but we see bobby show up and uh he sees ed and norma chatting uh at one of the tables here at the double r and uh this is the return of our old pal big ed i was incredibly excited to see him uh, I was too. Just a gr- just a great little reveal here of the camera just pushing slightly to the right, and uh, what does he say? He says like, "Hey there, deputy," or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just great to see Big Ed. His hair looks great, by the way. He has very cool hair. Uh, it does. It's, it's almost like sort of like, yeah, it's almost sort of Lynch esque. Like if Lynch shaved the, the the sides of his head, it's a very like surprisingly hip millennial haircut for big ed i think yeah yeah i didn't even think of that but it, it is um i was i was i was it warmed my heart to see big ed again uh and to see him with norma of course but mm-hmm. i also love how bobby tries to excuse himself and leave them alone and big ed tells him to sit <laughs> his butt down in true mm-hmm. big ed fashion it, it's cool i mean this was uh thinking back obviously in the original run and those three characters uh Nice to see them all, even briefly for a moment, sitting at the table together, talking about Major Briggs. Yep. Ed is uh, very insistent that Bobby sit with them, even though Bobby is perfectly willing to uh, let them have a moment together there. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, so Bobby says that they found some stuff that his dad left today. That's what he says, today. And we know that by today, he means episode nine right which was four episodes ago so this is happening on that same day like this was this is some of like the strongest confirmation we have gotten so far that not everything we're seeing is happening in order like possibly not even close to it like i'm not even confident that this scene takes place after the one that we saw in the double r earlier that we just talked about yeah no it, it it is i think it's a telegraphing too like he it, it i'm sure it's in the script we found some things that have, that my dad left today um but yeah this this is for sure a it, it's ha- like uh, makes you wonder 
about some of the scenes um, of significance. And like, of course there are ones that we can piece together and say this happened after that. Um, but yeah, a weird bit of continuity because we've, we've seen Bobby since uh, obviously we saw them like, uh, Oh no, that's the right. Same we day saw him in, uh, right. We saw him in, uh, in part 11 with the whole, the shooting and the screaming woman and all that. Right. Exactly. So obviously that. And there's no way that that was the same after... day as this. Fuck no. <laughs> no way. Um, which also what it, so what day is this then for Becky? Is this before or after, uh, she tries to shoot Steven through the door? Um, yeah, this is, and like we said, how this is sort of like the beginning of, uh, of this like final run of this up of this, uh, season. It's also where this shit starts becoming like unignorable. And, um, it, it really makes me want to like, go back again and watch the previous 12 episodes with like a, f- the f- a finer tooth comb, <laughs> even though I just did a fucking podcast about it. It's like, it's almost like, hold on, where, where does it actually get weird? And I think it's weird from the very start. Like we, none of the things we're seeing, uh, we can, we can't assume anything about when they take place in a timeline and expect it to make chronological sense because it just doesn't, especially with stuff like this, which is blatant. Like it, it, this is blatantly taking place before the last time we saw Bobby. Yeah. And yeah, it is. Yeah. Without question. But yeah, this is all stuff that we'll sort out in our uh, our Twin Peaks uh, rewatch rewatch podcast, of where course. we just go through all the same episodes again and uh, sort the timeline out once and for all. Uh, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll come to some conclusive answers to that, as well as uh, what's up with Ray. I'm, I'm confident of it. We just need yeah. to give this whole thing another shot. So yeah, we're just gonna do it again. Yep. Uh. So Norma and Ed. They're having a moment here, and uh, you know we as an audience, we're obviously, you know, we're we're Twin Peaks fans. We're invested in the idea of Ed and Norma being together. It seemed like at the end of season two, like there was a chance that they might be together, and uh, Ed sort of diffuses that, like you mentioned, saying like, "Hey, there's nothing going on here," and then that much is confirmed when the dreaded Walter shows up. The sleazy Walter businessman Walter shows up and uh, rips Norma away from Big Ed, and uh, we we we're just as an audience we are instantly uh, against Walter. Uh, not least of all because he is interfering with uh, this romance that we all want between Norma and Ed, but also he just has sort of a generally sleazy uh businessman vibe oh yeah he doesn't remember ed's name and then when he learns it again he just kind of brushes it off it's like hey 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 that's big fucking ed hurley pal who do you think you are waltzing mm-hmm. into twin peaks onto my screen being this snide <laughs> yeah he's he does put off that that um impersonal kind of douchey vibe um right right from the moment he's on screen um but yeah i i personally like for me Ed and Norma, that's my, like, like, that's, like, the one thing that I really hoped for, like, in season three. Like, I, I really, ha- like, had hoped for, like, they're just, like, my favorite happy story. Like, it's a simple thing. They're both in love with each other. They're both 
can't be together. It's timeless. Uh, so yeah, I hate this guy. I hate Walter. Yep, and you mentioned at the start of this podcast that there were some pretty strong meta elements in this episode, yep. and this is definitely one of those right here. Absolutely, uh, with this whole discussion about pies and Norma. Uh, essentially being encouraged to sell out and turn a bigger profit by using cheaper ingredients and raising the price of uh, her pie. And it's pretty hard to escape the parallels here of David Lynch's well-documented struggles with movie studios and with ABC in the original run. It's just... Uh, it's pretty pretty blatant, and I would say the line that most clearly sticks out is when Walter says to Norma, quote, you're a real artist, but love doesn't always turn a profit. Yep, you can almost hear David Lynch speaking those words. It's, it's the use of the word love, too. It's sort mm-hmm. of like that's, that's, his, um, that's his modus operandi, is love, and he, mm-hmm. he preaches that, and this man is... is this character is, is speaking what we know uh, to be something that the writer, or I guess it was assumed to be the writer, uh, disagrees with. And but yeah, it's it's a it's an it's like there's a lot of interesting things about like what exactly he's asking her to do. Like he's also asking her to call the R and R diner uh, Norma's R and R in Twin Peaks like this sort of like personalization or like almost uh i don't know like just this sort of branding thing um right that obviously he's while he's like we've said a bunch in this podcast like he there's the the there is a lynchian um aesthetic or something like that but it's not a brand it is art and it's out of love uh not out of selling more pies yeah yeah absolutely and you know in addition to, you know, you said the key word was love. Um, the other key word there is artist, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. which really stuck out to me because, like, how often would you, you know, associate somebody who makes pies in a diner with the word artist? You know what I mean? Like, not so, like, right. I believe, like, there is artistry in, in cooking, obviously, but how often would you... I, I just... It just stuck out to me like a sore thumb that this word was being used in in this particular concept. You know what I mean? Or in this uh, yep. context, yeah. rather. Yeah, it, it is a very blatant metaphor. Um, and one that I think is meant to be so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just from a direction standpoint here, I really like the way that Lynch frames this, where just beyond Walter's shoulder, we can see out of focus Big Ed sitting there uh, sipping his coffee, just sort of glaring at the conversation that's being had here. And it's just reminding us as an audience the whole time, like this, you know, Ed should be here, you know, in yeah. this guy's place. Like we don't like this guy. We we want Ed. And just the way that he is very literally hanging off this guy's shoulder is, uh, um, is, is definitely uh, remarkable. Yep. There's even a shot where they where Norma and Ed lock eyes over his shoulder. Um, mm-hmm. tiny little moment, but it's yeah. like, uh, you like, yeah. Uh, I, and I think I appreciate stuff like that after, uh, like 
re- rewind this podcast 10 minutes and, and listen to what we were just talking about, like the insanity of some of the plot. It's like sometimes it's really nice to just have simple, like, Ed loves Norma. Norma's dating this asshole. Fuck that guy. It's just nice and simple and pure. Um, but, and it is, it's, it's just so, just like the, uh, the range in, in, in what can be accomplished like on this show and, and like the, it, it can, it can hit you at, and like the heartstrings kind of thing, like a scenes like this, or it can kind of just send you off into the mental asylum. Like, uh, like before, but it's, uh, it's amazing. It's, it's truly one of a kind. Yep. Yep. And it's so easy too, right? It's just, it doesn't take much just to get the old heartstrings going and, uh, just to play play on that nostalgia just enough, you know, not overdoing yeah, it. Yeah, it's not, but it's not too indulgent. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of, uh, ships, uh, between old school Twin Peaks characters. Let's stick around in Twin Peaks and uh, observe a meeting between, uh, a long-awaited meeting uh, between Nadine and Dr. Jacoby slash Dr. Amp. Dr. Amp shows up uh, in his truck at Run Silent Run Drapes which is where Nadine just kind of hangs out, apparently. Um, doesn't appear that uh, the place is open. Seems pretty late at night, but she's just there. Uh, whatever whatever she's doing, drinking milkshakes and whatnot. And uh, yeah, so she runs outside to meet him, and she's very excited to meet Dr. Amp in the flesh. I mean, wh- I mean, obviously these characters we know have probably had interactions before this, but I don't really remember Jacoby and Nadine having any significant interactions in the original run. At least not that I Does he diagnose her? Does he diagnose her when she thinks she's in high school again? Oh, maybe. I think that's, I think that might be like, I mean, obviously they probably just know each other from being residents for the last like couple decades, but I'm pretty sure that they have an interaction when she, turns into a superhuman uh high schooler and starts dating <laughs> other mike right 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 and it is kind of funny the degree to which she treats him like a celebrity you know because in her mind he's it's sort of like he's ceased to be dr jacoby and has fully assumed the mantle of dr amp and she she treats him that way she like does. it's 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 pretty weird and just the strangest thing, the way that this scene ends here with this extremely odd anecdote that Jacoby gives about seeing Nadine, like, drop a potato in a supermarket and, like, oh yeah, get down and look for it. And then the scene just ends. <laughs> and Nadine yeah, is just kind of like, about that. oh, yeah. And it's like a really weird, awkward silence for a little while. And then we just never see them again. It is, it is one of the oddest things. That's how those two fall in love. Apparently. Uh, yeah. Stories about dropping potatoes at the grocery store. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's, 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 uh, setting us up for, for our amazing, wonderful, 
uh, event mm-hmm. with Big Ed and Norma. But yeah, it it, it is a uh, it like we've talked about a bunch of times. Like they're like the they're a power couple for sure. A uh, couple mm-hmm. of grade A freaks. But um, yeah, this apparently this is was the moment strange. that convinced her once and for all that uh, she needed to leave Ed and uh, be with Doctor Jacoby. Yeah. So apparently, uh, his weird ass story about her looking for a potato was was really what put the moves on her. Different strokes for different folks. Yeah, and there is kind of an odd, I don't know, just something I was thinking about this time watching this scene and just how awkwardly that moment plays out. Um, it is sort of like the dynamic between like an online creator, like a YouTuber or somebody like that, and their fans where like you meet somebody whose work you really admire and like you feel like you know them pretty well because of what you've seen from them and then you meet them and it's kind of like well you don't really know this person and you don't really know what to say to them and that was kind of like the vibe that I got from this moment here where it's like the conversation just immediately runs out and they don't know what to say and they're just talking about potatoes (laughs) and there's an awkward silence (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah no that's actually perfect she's like this she's like a yeah. dr amp stan and then they he finally meets her and they're just like uh hmm oh yeah that's yeah. right we don't have keyboards shit mm-hmm. uh <laughs> hey you dropped two potatoes don't really one know each other yeah exactly so that's pretty much that we don't see jacoby again um for the rest of the season so yeah uh great job russ tamblin uh you were magnificent as dr amp you were uh a wholly unexpected and delightful part of this season and i'm really glad that he chose to come back for this role agreed wholeheartedly yeah so one last scene into or i guess this this will be our last scene in twin peaks but uh we gotta check in once again with sarah palmer who is up to some pretty on-brand depressing stuff in her house. (laughs) She is watching an old boxing match, only she's not watching a full boxing match. She's watching this boxing match that looks like it was filmed in like the 50s. And it's playing on, I timed this out, it's like a 15 second loop. It's just like the same Mm -hmm. 15 seconds being played over and over again. And she's sitting there watching it. She is just like drinking vodka. It looks like she's making Bloody Marys. She's got two ridiculously full ashtrays full of like what looks like partially smoked cigarettes. And then there are also... There are also prescription bottles on the table. Mm -hmm. And this is just this entirely wordless scene is incredibly effective at displaying the just like the desperate sadness and madness that this woman is enveloped in, I think. Yes. And not only do we have the boxing match on a loop, we actually get um, a loop of that shot up from her table. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where she 
She's yeah. sitting there smoking, and then she gets up, and then we get this shot from the table up to the TV. Then she comes back and does the exact same thing. So it, it really does do like a, a a magnificent job of illustrating the like complete like inhuman level of suffering that this person is going through. Uh, also, I don't know if you noticed this, but on the TV stand there are all kinds of bunnies. There's like four or five different bunnies. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, which I don't really know what to make out of, but uh, I know that there's something. There's something about bunnies. <laughs> it's not about the bunny. Is it? <laughs> but is it? That's but thing. is it? It might be. Yeah, I don't know. I, I do not know. I have no answers. Um, but yeah, the uh, the set design in the Palmer house here is just really on point. And um, just with the, the empty bottle of cheap booze. And we just saw her last episode go and stock up on on vodka at the grocery store so uh who knows maybe she has already run through it or maybe this scene is taking place before or or way after but yeah she uh she pretty clearly is self-medicating and just this um just this depiction of hell that this woman is trapped in of just like the tv just blasting this uh, this infernal maddening loop uh, is just so powerful to me. I don't know. It's in a weird way. It's one of the most disturbing scenes for me in the entire show. Yeah, it really and it goes. goes on for quite it, a while. It takes you there. Yeah, exactly. It, like drags you down like into that room and it, and it's, it's really dark. Yeah. You just, you instantly like, after like a minute and a half, you just want to get the hell out of there. You know? mm-hmm. Just with the electrical buzzing and everything like that. Like, ugh, it's terrible. So, uh, yeah. So let's check in with Audrey and Charlie where things seem to be rapidly unraveling for Audrey. I think it's fair to say she is definitely much more fearful this time around i think uh than she was the first time we saw her where she was a little bit more angry and defiant this time it really feels like she's beginning to lose her grip on reality you know she says stuff like uh you know i don't know who i am i feel like i'm somewhere else and it just really feels like the mask is slipping for her yeah this is where uh, I become confident that like you know none of this is happening in Twin Peaks or around Twin Peaks because they refer- referencing going to the Roadhouse and that all of this is happening at some metaphysical level. Um, I get the sense that like where to read like like the closer to the door she gets, sort of the more uncomfortable she becomes with the idea of of leaving. So like there is. Uh, like she's just um another character that's trapped in something um some some sort of like this also to me it like reads like hell like sort of being trapped with uh with Charlie now in front uh out from behind his desk but yeah those lines really like really uh struck me like where i feel like i'm somewhere else uh like like 
it again like it feels like this scene sort of really is telegraphing that none of this is happening in quote unquote Twin Peaks as we know it this is all something else entirely mm-hmm. yeah totally agreed and Charlie like he did in their last scene is just completely stonewalling her at every opportunity you know she says you know I, I feel like I'm not me do you ever feel that way and he's just like nope I always feel like myself and then he yep. says in this sort of semi mocking way uh this is existentialism 101 <laughs> right yeah <laughs> which like what a hell of a thing to somebody who is just clearly unraveling you know yeah it, it he's um he's very like it, i don't know it just reminds me he's a gaslighter like that's sort of like his function his function is to mm-hmm. deny the credibility of what this person is feeling like regardless of what it is she wants yeah. to know this information withhold it from her she feels this way mm-hmm. uh make it so that she uh like invalidate that in some way that's his mm-hmm. that's his role yeah and you know again tapping a little bit into the meta aspects of the show it's hard for me to hear some of these lines that he has here like are you going to stop playing games or am I going to have to end your story too? Which is like a weirdly, like vaguely bizarrely threatening thing that he says to her. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to, to think about that and not think a little bit about the somewhat uh, apparently tortured backstory of Cheryl and Fenn's involvement in this series. Uh, wherein we know that she was apparently not happy at all with the role that Lynch and Frost originally wrote for her, which we don't know for sure what that role was, but the role that we ended up seeing on here was like a total uh, revision. And this was something that uh, Lynch came up later and actually wrote himself with Mark Frost's blessing. Mm -hmm. And we know that Sherilyn Fenn was uh, upset with, with Lynch for the role that they chose to give her, like, like very upset. Like she kind of railed against them a little bit on, on Twitter. Um, some have speculated that her role was um, the Sylvia Horn role where uh, Richard shows up and she's assaulted by Richard. And that uh. could have been the reason why she wasn't happy about it, mm-hmm. um, which would make a lot of sense. Uh, that's just a theory, but it's, it's one that I think is, pretty probable yeah it's a good and one. so yeah and so uh you know when 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 charlie says like are you gonna stop playing games or am i gonna have to end your story you know it, it's almost reads to me like uh he is he is in a way the the author of of audrey's nightmare here and that right. lynch is sort of playing on this real world dynamic of Cheryl and Fenn being frustrated in her role here and uh in fact and this is going to be the third time that I'm going to reference the behind the scenes stuff uh Cheryl and Fenn at one point even has a little uh little joke with uh with David Lynch where she's you know they're talking about the fact that you know um Audrey is supposed to be really going after Charlie and and Lynch is telling her like you're just giving him the business you're giving him the business and she's just like yeah, I know where you wrote that from, you little brat. 
<laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. I just, it's impossible for me to, to watch this and not not key into uh, maybe the fact that David Lynch was, was drawing from some, some real world creative tension here. I don't know. It's just, it's some, it's just yet another layer of, of fascination to uh, what we see from Audrey in this season. I, I think that that ha- there's probably a lot of truth to that just because of how how Audrey's like involvement in this season culminates. It is with a completely fourth wall breaking moment of um you know prob- probably like for my money the, one of the most um disorienting of those moments uh where you really you it makes you really question what you've been watching this whole time. Um of course, when she does Audrey's dance in in the Roadhouse, so there's like if 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 the initial idea was to have her in the Sylvia Horn role, which is sort of one of um, like it's a plot device really, um, to then have that rejected and then have to come up with something new, it kind of like having a bit of an insight of how Lynch works it would make sense that like he would draw from that like well of like you said um creative tension or something like that and come up with something that ultimately really subverts the the show that you're watching like a lot in a big way um it it's i think there's got to be some level of truth to the fact that like there's there like there is like a real life message within the subtext of all of this Audrey Charlie business yeah yeah, I yeah I agree. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you agreeing with me. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, there are some other odd odd things that get said here. Of course, we get the title of the episode uh, immediately after the the line that we just talked about, where Audrey responds with, "What story is that, Charlie? Is it the story of the little girl who lived down the lane?" Which is one of the most curious lines in the entire season, given that we actually hear it repeated back to us, uh, I believe in part 18, by the evolution of the arm. Who also says, it's in, it the story oh, of a okay. little girl who lived down the lane. Right, yeah. I knew that the arm said uh, that. I thought that he said that in part two. or is that So that's when you go back to that scene, and he says it this time? He uh, says it on... Did he, did he say it in part? I think he... No, I think I think he only says it in later. I'm pretty sure. Hmm. Well, they do we do get that scene twice where Cooper visits the evolution of the arm and it like right. kind of, and it plays out the right. same way. Right, but I think so he, I think he only says Yeah, I think he only says it the second time. I'm pretty sure. I check the wiki. Just to be sure. Okay. okay. Um um Either way. Yeah, so yeah, this whole thing, the the story of the little girl who lived down the lane. I don't don't super know what to make of it. Um a lot of people have pointed to the Jodie Foster film uh that she made when she was a little girl called The Little Girl Who Lived Down the Lane from like the early 70s, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh I haven't seen that film. Um so I can't really comment on its potential relevance to this, but my gut 
my gut reaction is like when she says the little girl who lived down the lane, it just makes me think of Laura Palmer. Like that's yeah, that's, that's what that's, that's what pops into my head. What I'm, what I'm thinking about. Yeah, that's the only thing that pops into my head too. But um, it also like made me think about um, Inland Empire and the thing that Grace Zabrinsky says about like the story she tells about the like, the little girl and the little boy. Uh, I don't know why, but that's where my head went to. But it's just so perplexing that we see that have this line repeated. Uh, it because we we have like there is a, a few moments where it like stuff that happens in the red room almost seems to be like a, a recapitulation of something that happens elsewhere and of course there's like not a lot of rhyme or reason to to those scenes but um obviously like with the with Lara and the and the mask or her like opening up her face and then Sarah doing the same thing and then Lara being taken both in the red room and then again by Judy um there's like we keep getting these and then this one uh we keep getting these scenes in the red room that mirror stuff that happens elsewhere it's just uh uh another one of those like mind benders yeah very curious um and uh yeah so that that's that's about it for for Audrey and Charlie this time around um Oh, there is one thing that she says here that definitely make my made my ears perk up the first time I heard it, where she says, "It's like Ghostwood here," which, oh, um, yeah, yeah, which um, you'll remember gets gets talked about a lot in the original run, and yeah, um, apparently, um, well, according to to Mark Frost's uh, book, the final dossier, um. Ben Horn sold his his plot of land to uh um to construct a a prison there which was called like the the Ghostwood you know penitentiary or whatever um so when she says right, it's right. like Ghostwood here I'm thinking maybe she's talking about like it feels like like jail like yeah it's just like another, a prison yeah just another aspect of her feeling trapped in this. Uh, this nightmare realm with, uh, with her <laughs> emotionally distant, uh, to put it lightly, husband. So, yeah, uh, let's talk about what happens at the roadhouse this week, Dylan. Oh, what what happens at the roadhouse this week? I seem well, to have forgotten. funny you should ask. Funny you should ask. Um, what happened is a beloved character played an old classic and uh, yeah I mean that's pretty much it um, impossible to imagine why anybody would laugh at this or uh, have any sort of issue with it whatsoever uh, I say so is this another one of the scenes in the behind the scenes where David Lynch was crying behind the camera or uh, <laughs> or is it just is it just Renee Renee and her booth. Uh, I think Renee is a uh, Renee is a proxy for for David Lynch in this case. Um, yeah, because wh- why? Wh- yeah, why would David Lynch bring back this song unless it, it brought him to tears? Because it's just uh, such a, so emotional, you know. Just 
James Hurley's vocal performance uh, is just so powerful, and uh, the lyrics are so timeless. Yeah, and he's he's got uh, he has seemingly replaced Donna and Maddie with two uh, <laughs> two two singers unbeknownst to us, but uh, they sure sound a lot alike. Yeah, they they sound eerily like Donna and Maddie. Wouldn't you know it? Um, can I can I, can I be as vulnerable as I've ever been on this podcast here, Dylan. By will all you means. will you allow me that for a second? Oh um, you have the floor. I kinda like this song. I'm just gonna say oh. it. I kinda it's like it. It's a good song. I kinda like it's it. It's a nice little tune. It's a it's a I mean it's a little like fifties ditty, like a one six four five as we call it. Like it's just a yeah, the song is inoffensive. It's the context, I think, that that, that <laughs> might get to some people. But you know, what? I'm with you, man. I I like this song too. Um, it is it is perfectly weird, and I think I liked it the first time around too. I think I learned to. Uh, oh yeah. As- I learned to associate it with negativity, but overall, like that. No, man, this is a tune. It's a good one. Here's the, here's the thing. The first time I heard this song was, you know, obviously in the the famous living room scene with uh, James and Maddie and Donna, and I just thought like, wow, that was that was like a really like cool song. I really, you know, I like it. It's catchy. It's simple. Yeah. It's, you know, it's got you know some universality to the lyrics, and then I think what happened because it it happens very early uh, in the run, and it's before the. James stuff becomes just totally intolerable. Yeah. So I think part of the reason a lot of people hate it is just because of just like a universal contempt for all things James. And so James playing this really almost painfully sincere song has um, taken on an air of, of unintentional comedy for a lot of people uh, which I understand, but I just gotta like, I, it, for me this song like honestly like, you they you they could have thrown this song on like a, like a deer hunter, at, you know Atlas Sound uh, B sides collection, and I would have yep. been totally fooled and thought it was like a pretty pretty solid jam. I'm just gonna be honest about it. Yeah, it is only the the like the context of like what James means culturally to Twin Peaks fans. And like, of course I think we, uh, we're all in agreement. Like that story arc is bullshit. Like it just sucks in season two. We all get it. But like uh, yeah. people, I think hate people enjoy hating James more than say uh, like more than is necessary because you're right. Like at that point when it happens, uh, in the first season, James is just like any other character on Twin Peaks. He's just some kind of, mm-hmm. he, he's just, he's, he's part of the mystery. He's part, like he's, uh, one of Laura's many suitors. It It's, um, it, like you're saying, it's only afterwards that the contempt for James, uh, this is like, and then this becomes like the, the theme song, um, that, I mean, you know whatever god bless the internet for a lot of things but like shit getting memeified it's like uh once it happens it's <laughs> over you know it's it's the there's like a sincerity that you have to like strive for through like the the forest of memes just to like get at like 
<laughs> what is this actually supposed to what are we get what are we dealing with here but i agree with you like this song it, in and of itself this is a this is a nice little tune and i like it yeah i don't mind it i think it is pretty insane though that lynch decided to once again insist on the the cool factor of james hurley by having him play at the roadhouse this song and being one of the few acts that the MC actually announces, you know, alongside uh, Nine Inch Nails and uh, the recording of ZZ Top. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. It is pretty funny. Uh, just the fact that this happened at all is funny. I know I definitely started laughing uh, hysterically when I realized what was happening because I knew that. Twin Peaks fans around the globe were simultaneously laughing along with me. Exactly, uh, yeah. But yeah, again, I don't I don't mind this song. I think it's fine. James Hurley is a goober, he's a goofball. But I think in the original context, this song uh works really well. And uh clearly Renee is a big fan because she is just sobbing <laughs> in the booth. Um. Yeah, I we've do like your about the, previously the theory meant... that. Oh yeah, that's what I was just yeah. gonna say. Your theory. Hmm. Yeah, because while like very few characters that we've seen would have such a profound emotional connection to the song, and it just makes sense that that Donna would be one of those people. So yeah, she's not up there on that stage the way she should be. She's sitting in that booth, <laughs> missing out, missing out on those sweet harmonies. Yep, and she's married to that jerk ch- uh, Chuck. So. Oh yeah. She can't. She can't be with the uh, the true love of her life, James Hurley. Um. So yeah, that's that. Uh. And we get. After that, surprisingly, this was not the ending scene. What I think is one of the best endings that this show has. I love this whole melancholy scene here of Big Ed by his lonesome eating his soup and drinking his coffee alone at his gas farm. I think Mm. it's just such a great piece of forlorn filmmaking. Yeah, I think that it's it depicts a, a very dull and um, unromantic aloneness. Like, um, something that, like, it, a scene like this really, like, gives... Uh, it, it sets up so much release that you get later on. But I really... I, I just... I, I adore its wordlessness and how simple it is. But most of all, just how... Um, it it's like a like I don't know, I don't get the sense that we're seeing like Ed at like this isn't like necessarily Ed's mood every single night. This is just like he's in a mood and it's because of the afternoon and after all these years that like pang of uh of I don't know what you want to call it aloneness or or obviously he's a married man but like in his heart of hearts like he's truly uh 
got this void, this hole that can only be filled by uh, this one person that he's had in his mind for decades. And just as he sits there and, uh, of course, drinking coffee from Norma's from Norma's shop, um, it's really just like a, it's like it's a, uh, it I don't know. It's it's actually like a, it's a relatable feeling, I guess. Like it's a very human, um, sort of like mopey aloneness, but like it's not romanticized. It's just you sitting there by yourself sure like yeah just to be know. alone with your thoughts thinking about a girl you know it's a it's pretty pretty universal emotions being conveyed here absolutely and and big ed of all people to hold that fort down he's been doing it for this entire run on the show <laughs> um but you know i, yeah, I love man. the way and, that uh, it, it, this ends too just the, how the episode ends with this yeah, and he he takes out a little folded piece of paper and lights it on fire, and uh, who knows? Maybe that was like his love letter to Norma, you know? Like maybe that was him telling her that you know the way that he's been feeling about her for all these years, you know? Yeah, it might it might be, um, or it could just that could just. I mean, be what his, else would it like, be? You know? Yeah. Or just, I was thinking just like a small act of frustrated, like defiance or, or just like some, sure I don't know, like slamming a door just, but, but either yeah. way, like it, it's, it's a very, uh, evocative way to end the episode, uh, a, a very, mm-hmm. uh, very intense episode in a lot of ways. Yeah. He's, he's just, uh, you know, a lonely man at the end of his life you know just sitting there thinking about a lot of things probably you know where his life is at where it could have been and i don't know it's just uh it's uh it's amazing that all of that could be conveyed just through just a, a totally wordless series of uh series of movements here you know of him just sort of staring at the window and eating eating his soup and drinking his double r coffee it's uh it's really wonderful i I love it it's actually very fitting with the way that this season treats a lot of the material from previous seasons in that where we obviously have like the drama soapy aspect of like norma and ed and then now we have like 25 years later it's like this ain't cute anymore like (laughs) This isn't like a, a man at, at, in the later stages of his life pondering some pretty, uh, some pretty like existential yeah. questions. Um, but yeah, it, it, the way that it treats that with a lot of care and empathy, um, is really striking. Yeah, he's you know he's a grown ass man. You know he's he's not a not a youngster anymore. Um, but yeah, so. On that note, that's going to be it for part 13. What story is that, Charlie? And, uh, yeah, like I said, this is this is the beginning of a pretty steady upward climb in this season. And, uh, you know, we're tentatively hoping to uh, have some pretty cool guests for you guys uh, in the final third of this, uh, final third of this season. Knock on wood. 
Uh, but yeah, we hope that you will join us for uh, the next episode, part 14. Uh, if you'd like to write into us, you can do so at 119podcast at gmail.com. Uh, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us out. It'll help other Twin Peaks fans find this show. If you want to get at us on Twitter, you can do so at 119podcast. I am at Strenuous Orb, and Dylan is at Piff Dylan. So yeah, thanks again uh, for listening to this podcast, and uh, we hope you'll uh, tune in next week. Thanks, guys. Peace.